0: Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Navaz Habib.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Really excited for a wonderful conversation that we're about to dig into with Dr. David Yoder. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr.
2: Yoder. Yes, thank you for having me, Dr. Habib, uh, very exciting meeting of the minds. Uh, you, you've got the, the the format, the show. We've got the genius over here, Mr. <laughs> KP, and then I'm the creative. I just I grab things from the left and the right, eastern and western, and I connect dots and I just go with the flow. So that my insatiable curiosity, I think, is what makes my learning experience and my healing uh, atmosphere here in the clinic unique. What people come for. So excited to share. Wonderful.
1: We're really excited to have you here because you have a bit of a unique view and a unique practice out there in California. And I believe there's some changes abound with regards to your practice, but we're very excited to kind of hear the philosophy, understand the reasoning for why you practice the way that you do, what you believe that you do, and understand how you can utilize neuromodulation within your practice to help support the health of your patients. And You alluded to the fact that JP is here as well. JP, thanks for joining again.
0: Always great to be here. Thank you.
1: Wonderful. So why don't we dig in and understand kind of your beginnings and your evolution in chiropractic itself and in developing David Yoder Wellness, the clinic
2: itself. So basically for me, it's always out of necessity. So I'm a Virgo. I'm analytical. I'm always seeking the truth. And so I was on a... uh, pre-med full-ride scholarship in Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Right about this time, I'm sitting in a very cold building, I'm in the basement of a lab in Detroit, and I'm wearing steel mesh gloves, and I'm having to withdraw vials and vials of blood from these cage rats that we made diabetic. And So I had to do a timed experiment where I had to do blood draws every two hours. And so I had to leave my comfy, warm home and drive to downtown Detroit in the bitter cold and de-ice my windows and ride through the snow. One of the draws, because it's every two hours, is going to be, you know, the the wee hours at night there. And going in Detroit at nighttime is pretty scary. I had the keys to the medical building and laboratory, anatomy lab where all the humans and animals were kept. And just imagine going into this room, and as you open up this room, you see uh, rats' cages, two by two and, and rat labs are pretty big. I mean, it takes like a good hand to hold them there and you have to wear steel mesh gloves because they're anticipating getting jabbed from a blood draw or a, uh, a medical drug insertion into their abdomen. Their stomach is all scarred up so you have to like really pound that needle in so they're going to be in pain. They scream and they defecate and pee and they claw and so you have to wear the steel mesh gloves to protect yourself. And I'm an animal lover. And so, it was very disheartening for me to have to do this to the animals, but I knew the name of science, you know, the better name of science. So, but I thought to myself, I had a quick preview is this my future life doing lab experiments on animals? And I kind of felt the way we made the animals diabetic was not how we humans became diabetic. And so I thought, hmm, the context is kind of off here. And so I just thought, is there another way I can be a healer and be a doctor? in contrast to this format. And so I went to my professor, Dr. Uh, Joseph Dunbar um, at at the medical school. He was my mentor on the scholarship and I told him I was gonna give up the scholarship. And he said, hmm, well, what's better than a scholarship? (laughs) What are you gonna do? I said, well, I'm gonna check out alternative medicine and I've been reading about chiropractic medicine. And he took off his glasses and he said, get out of my office. He said, that's the stupidest thing you could ever do. And so, I'd known this man for almost two years and he didn't even ask me, you know, sit down, let's talk about this. If he had an opinion for or against, I didn't know, he just told me to get out of the office. So it kind of compelled me like, hmm, why is he so against chiropractic medicine? Is there something that he knows that I don't know? So I was lucky to find a mentor, Dr. Carl Johnson, to allow me to come into his clinic and to shadow with him. And he observed very quickly my posture was really off, and all of my school pictures from elementary school through high school, my head was tilted to the left. I had at least three concussions that nobody knew about. It was because I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And my parents probably would have sent me to my room. I got into trouble. But I grew up in Detroit. You just tough up, and you know you don't reveal your weakness to the other kids there if you want to keep playing with them. So. He said, Yeah, let's do a workup on you. And I think that way you would understand chiropractic the best. At that time, I was thinking chiropractic was only for deranged people. Like you just had a severe car accident, you had scoliosis, you're in severe pain, you know, you're an old crippled person. You know, I didn't think there was like this wellness preventative aspect. And so he did an x ray and I had a double reverse curve. And if you don't know what that is for the layperson, uh, so the curve is supposed to. Go like so, and mine was backwards and then backwards again. And I always had strep throats, uh, chronic upper respiratory infections in the winter, headaches, chronic pain in my head, neck, shoulders, arms, and hands. I'd wake up probably twice, if not three times a month, with torticollis, where my head and my neck was like this, very painful to move around. And I just was accepting that. And I had already tried the best that medicine could offer, and I just assumed I was going to live with this. So he started working on me, and within a very short period of time, my symptoms alleviated, and I restored my curve after about a year of chiropractic cure. And the next winter, when I always got sick, I wasn't sick. I was taller, my vision corrected, I was stronger, my lungs were healthier, and I was thinking clearer. And I said, this is enough personal testimony that this confirmed I need to pursue to become a chiropractor. So I dropped everything and headed out to California and I attended Life West Chiropractic College in the Bay Area, graduated in 2002, and opened up my practice here in San Diego. Now, when I opened up my practice, Chiropractic College told me how to be a great chiropractor, how to diagnose, how to look at x-rays, you know, do soap notes. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to heal the world and adjust the world and adjust as many people as I can. I'd been on mission trips where I adjusted literally hundreds of people in a day and and saw pretty good results. But what I saw very quickly is I could do a great adjustment, but people weren't holding their adjustment. I thought, what the heck? I'm a pretty darn good adjuster, I've been trained with the best and people literally are coming back the next week with the same pattern. I dabble a little bit in this technique called applied kinesiology, where you can muscle test and look at other reasons why person's spine may subluxate or not hold its alignment. So I started to consider biochemical attributes to the subluxation complex. For example, C1, chronically going out, is also known to be a food allergy connection. And so I didn't quite understand the mechanisms, but it seemed to make sense. So I started adding in nutrition to my practice I saw, "Hmm, okay, people are holding their adjustments for now maybe two weeks, but they're still not quite holding their adjustments. And then I personally went through my second health crisis. I had adrenal fatigue. So it was four years of chiropractic college, staying up late studying, relocation from Northern California to Southern California, preparing for my wedding, starting a business, a lot of stress, good stress, but a lot of stress. And I knew it was really bad when I was in church and all of a sudden I would feel reeling and dizziness so quickly that I had to grab the pew so I wouldn't like fall over If I missed lunch uh, during the the day, um, I would feel very dizzy and it would be like uh, POTS uh, where I would just feel my blood pressure, my heart rate, and just really faint and dizzy. And my patients uh, could clearly see something's wrong. And one of my patients said I had adrenal fatigue. And so I began a program to work on that. And that took me about another year to correct. And so I learned from life. I learned from my patients. But then when I moved over to this clinic here uh, where I'm sitting in my hallway right now, I had more complex patients. So it seems like when life thinks you know it all that it gives you more complexity and more challenges. So it humbles you very quickly. So I started getting really severe cases. And I mean, it almost felt like an ER room where people literally were saying to me, I'm going to the hospital, but you're such a great diagnostician and doctor that I trust you that I, I figure you could fix it. And then if I didn't have to, you know, go to the hospital, I prefer to, you know, you, you work on this. And so it just forced me to dig deeper and deeper, and I kept wondering in the back of my head, why don't people hold their adjustment? So then um, this movement began called uh, biohacking. The famous is Dave Asprey had a chronic uh, health condition that nobody could solve, and being a computer programmer for uh, Silicon Valley, uh, he knew how to use uh, computers, and he kind of Dr. Googled uh, his uh, health symptoms and found out that it was a mold toxicity that was causing his obesity, his chronic fatigue, his fibromyalgia, his depression. And so he biohacked with the assistance of computer knowledge and um, various technologies and nutritional protocols, a uh, self-help program and kind of births biohacking. So now he holds the biggest biohacking conferences in the world and started the movement. You know, There's a lot of other people now in uh, from Dr. Jack Cruz to Ben Greenfield, Joseph Mercola, et cetera. So within biohacking, I got very intrigued with the mitochondria as being the powerhouse. We humans have about 70 trillion cells. That's quite darn amazing. And they self-organize, they self-heal, they, they know how to work and, and function. It's pretty miraculous, actually. And it, what's really tricky is to think about if you live to be a hundred years of age, your body rejuvenates itself about 20 times so it, because that's due to the fact that in about every five years, 90% of our cells, are they die and they get regenerated and replaced. So it's like you get a new car every five years. That's if you make it to 100. So if we live to be 100 and we get 20 times to reorganize, why do we age? Why do some people age quicker? Why do some people just not? fight off disease and deal with stress as well. But there's some answer within the mitochondria. And I came up with this observation that I've never met a chronically ill sick patient with lots of energy. I've never met a chronically sick patient with excess energy levels. You look at a little kid, a little baby, they got lots of energy. So much energy at all. If you're babysitting them or a parent or grandparent, it'll wipe you out, they'll run circles around you. I love energy for multiple reasons. I love to think, I love to research, I love to help, I love to do, I love to be outside, just move my body. And so I'm always looking for energy sources. Now question inequality, is the energy source sustainable? That's another question that we'll probably get into. But uh, yeah, most people are addicted to the energy sources for the mitochondria that are very tasty, aka sugars and carbs or alcohol. So they're not very addicted to the sustainable energy mitochondrial sources such as fats and proteins. They're not as tasty. And so I learned about Dr. Mercola switching his diet to a paleo keto diet light years to have everybody else. He just he made the observation that in the United States brain health was declining rapidly. Somebody said that Alzheimer's was a form of type 3 diabetes. And that was just groundbreaking to think about I thought diabetes was just obesity and a, a gut thing. I didn't think it was a brain energy thing. And when they said type 3 diabetes is, can manifest as Alzheimer's, it really just sealed the deal for me to like really go down that road. So, Dr. Mercola started just eating fat like crazy. And, and at that time, the food pyramid still said, fat's gonna kill you, fat is bad. And I think the food pyramid just updated it, Just Last year, the year before, but pretty recently, said, "Whoops, we were wrong. Sorry, guys. Eat your fats. Eat your butter. Eat your avocados. Eat your omega threes. Eat your fatty fish." They, they they completely updated that. So that's the trend of academia. Unfortunately, is that they can be decades behind what's clinically relevant. So it's up to people in the field in the practice, seeing real world observations, to set the tone and not maybe have to wait for academics. Not that academics is wrong with you know doing research, but oftentimes we see it here in the clinic a good decade before anybody else was talking about it. So he's still eating lots of fat. If you see him, he looks great. He's got a great mind. He's very healthy, very lean, and, uh, and producing and being effective for his community, his research, and, and himself and his family. Within the context of energy dynamics and holding the adjustments, I stumbled across vagus nerve stimulation. The reason it, it called to me was it was calming for all of our stress nerve systems and it was anti-inflammatory and it also supported the mitochondria. And then the last aspect to bring the conversation is the work of Thomas Myers and the fascial connective system and also the body electric by Dr. Beck. That the myofascia has an electrical nature and so when I graciously got the Vagus nerve stimulator from ore. I relocated the application to an area that I felt uh, was providing me like a me a uh, electrical cervical adjustment. So I basically put this up here by my atlas, and I do this daily, if not twice. And I used to have to go to my chiropractor to hold my alignment um, about twice a month, and I'm going on six to eight months now. Oh, and. That's in combined with my Paleo Keto diet, my exposure to sunlight. I'm an excellent sleeper. That's number one. If I need one recipe to get me back on track or to help recuperate, I just hit bed early and I get my sleep and I can bounce back super quick. So I'm trying to encourage my clients to consider adding in the vagus nerve stimulation. So when my patients come in, everybody gets vagus nerve stimulation before the adjustment and it helps calm them down and then when i go to adjust them i find i don't need to do as much work or if i uh, adjust it it's already like they've had a massage their their their, the tension in their their neck their spine is a lot more relaxed they can definitely feel it because it's a very strong electrical um, signal and uh, i have a good number of clients a couple dozen plus that are now using it at home to take care of their spine their health and they've reported giving me great clinical feedback from high blood pressure regulation blood sugar regulation better sleep uh, better cognition weight loss acid reflux uh, resolved um, chronic inflammation and pain resolved um, just a better sense of well-being so it's it's enough clinical evidence that I want to keep going down this road yeah I'm just very excited that this uh, device was invented and I think it needs to get out there to the healing professions to help their clients, to help themselves. Um, And and again, it it circles back to uh, you'll never meet a chronically sick patient with lots of uh, energy. So we need to reinvigorate the mitochondria, educate our patients because education is like a picture's worth a thousand words. If you give a person a fish for one day, you teach them how to fish they can eat for a lifetime. So we need to educate our patients. I think while you're doing this podcast, uh, while we all personally uh, love research, But what I really love is seeing the lights go off in my patients and then, of course, seeing the health transformation and them getting so functional that they can live their life better and then be of service to their community and others. So we really need to turn society around because when one person is down, it literally takes a team to help that person get by. And that's not sustainable for a whole society for every one person that have, one person down, have 10 people getting them through, different therapists from psychology to nutritionist to acupuncture, chiropractic, medical doctor, whereas if you have one person upgraded (laughs) and taking care of their energy levels, now they're helping 10 other people. We're reversing that and now we have a functional society. So Mm -hmm. that's what excites me is uh, not just at the individual level, but getting America strong, getting people strong, getting us back where we have so much energy and so much functionality, we can go back to the Renaissance age where, or forward to another Renaissance age where we create and invent and just inspire and make the world a better place.
1: It's so amazing to hear your journey being a very holistic and overarching approach to understanding your own health and then being able to apply that in a clinical setting. So it's really inspiring to hear that. JP, why don't you go ahead?
0: Yeah, I wanted to dive into that topic of energy and your observation, which is a keen one, that people who are sick tend not to have a lot of energy. And we find, actually, that people have energy deficits throughout a variety of different things that wouldn't necessarily be called illnesses, including just aging. And one of the things that I found fascinating, having continued our conversations with Dr. Marie-Eve Tremblay, is a discussion about immunometabolism. And so just to give a little context to what I'm talking about is that when people become concussed or they've gone through a a long period of inflammation, either through infection or through autoimmunity, or they have a trauma, you find that their immune systems don't necessarily respond and, and restore themselves the way they're supposed to. In fact, there's many models, animal models of disease that are developed or created as a result of a chronic inflammation or a chronic activation of the innate immune system. And so what immunometabolism is all about is trying to understand how a temporary or acute inflammatory event can permanently alter the innate immune cells like macrophages or in the central nervous system, microglial cells, et cetera, and why it is that those cells are incapable or unwilling to return to their normal state. And it turns out that it has a lot to do with the energy metabolism within those cells. And you raised the topic of mitochondria. And just to give everybody sort of a background, I'm sure that all the healthcare providers know all about mitochondria, but Interesting historical or evolutionary fact about them is they're actually a separate life form. Every human cell, every cell in every animal, every cell that's out there that's not a plant cell is really a symbiotic organism. It's got the cell itself and then it has mitochondria. Mitochondria actually have a slightly different DNA code even. So it sort of is the clinching evidence that they're actually a separate life form. Chloroplasts are sort of similar in that they were incorporated into plant cells as the energy sources for those cells. But that's not the only way that cells can make energy. Mitochondria are very efficient power plants that sit inside our cells and generate ATP and energy through what's called oxidative phosphorylation. But that's not the only way. Another way people may have heard of is glycolysis. And glycolysis is less efficient, but it's more local. And so what happens, it turns out, is during inflammation, the cells of our innate immune system, macrophages and microglial cells, cease to use mitochondria as their sources of energy. In fact, they have a dysfunction. Those mitochondria become dysfunctional and they start to rely on glycolysis. And to the extent that they remain in that state, it biases them to remain in that inflammatory or hypervigilant state and not return to their homeostatic state in which they're doing housekeeping activities. So they remain in this distracted, almost distracted from their housekeeping tasks. They remain in this, what I'll refer to as dysfunctional because it's there's no reason for it. It's not performing the function at that point. And so they remain in this dysfunctional state. And that then leads To, as you also said, Dr. Yoder, we have 70 trillion cells and they all know how to self-organize, they know how to behave, but they're all guided and controlled by macrophages. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the research that's really evolved over the last decade and, and to a certain extent even within the last five years, understanding that those innate immune cells, macrophages and microglial cells, are... Really, the creators of us, the maintainers of us, they're the maintenance team, they're the security team, they keep everything moving in the body correctly. And when they get distracted, as we just said, getting dysfunctional or dysregulated from an energy balance standpoint, from an immunometabolism standpoint, we get sick and we stay sick. And ultimately, if that's not restored, we are chronically in pain, chronically ill, and we have less energy because all of the cells in our body are gonna follow the leader, if you will, and end up in this dysregulated mitochondrial dysfunctional state. But in any event, the idea of immunometabolism and how it plays into our states of health, really, the research is consistent with what your experiences
2: are and your intuition's been. JP, do we know the tipping point from uh, being functional to being dysfunctional, which is the, mitochondrial to that uh, from going from using a higher energy state to a lower energy state of glycolysis?
0: You know, it's interesting. I think that's work that's being done right now, as I've been reading, part of the tasks of, at least in the central nervous system of microglial cells, and this is a fascinating point I just learned, is that microglial cells actually have the ability to take in dysfunctional, mitochondria from other cells. So they actually have a pathway when they're... We know that microglial cells are constantly surveilling their environment when they're in a housekeeping state, and they can touch and use their phagocytosis and nephrocytosis and trogocytosis capabilities to prune the network, to remove cells that are either dead or dying, or remove cellular debris, or just adjust the strength or gain, if you will, of synapses. They do a tremendous number of tasks, but one of those tasks while they're out there touching other cells is when those cells have dysfunctional mitochondria, it appears, and again, this research is cutting edge, it actually appears that they can take in the dysfunctional mitochondria out of other cells and then hold them. And it may be one of the reasons why we have this class of microglial cells that are called dark microglial cells. And those cells appear to be inflammatory and in a state of mitochondrial dysfunction that ultimately becomes imbalanced relative to the other tissue. So they're really sacrificing themselves to save the other tissue that their job is to maintain. And then they end up also hoarding iron. So there's a whole iron metabolism piece of this week that we won't get into, but we did a whole podcast on where inflammatory cells tend to hoard iron. You can actually have a state of too much iron in the system, but also have anemia. Because if you're in a truly inflamed state, you end up having all this iron hoarded by your immune cells and in the liver. So then these microglial cells, in this case of the brain, that have become darkened because both of their iron content as well as their dysfunctional mitochondria that they've taken in from other cells they actually dispose themselves. They go over to structures in the vasculature and either move into the bloodstream and die so that they can be cleared out, or they remain dysfunctional but in this sequestered area. And so just a fascinating role that mitochondria play in the dysfunction where their dysfunction plays in sort of chronically leaving these immune cells in an inflamed and partially dysfunctional state Where the only way that they can get energy because they've sort of given up their healthy mitochondria is through glycolysis and it starts to give an explanation as to why these cells remain in that state for so long because we end up having these microglial cells that are dysfunctional for literally years or decades or for the remainder of your life and sometimes those events can happen so early in life that it really unfortunately in some ways sort of dams that existence for a, a lifetime. One of the things that we're looking at is the extent to which vagus nerve stimulation can prompt or promote either a turnover of these microglial cells and sort of restoring new healthy cells into the system or reverting those cells, finding a way for those cells to accelerate their healing process by suppressing the immune response there's a whole pathway with that's parallels the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway that involves reducing reactive oxygen species because of course when you're hoarding all that iron there's a lot of iron there that can become can lead to reactive oxygen species because of ion transport and uh, electron transport of metal oxide chemistry
2: yeah can we uh circle back I want to highlight and zoom into this updated research finding because we have better imaging now that discovered the brain glymphatic system. Because when I started getting adjusted, the one thing that also I didn't share was my sleep was significantly improved and also shortened, not shortened in a bad way, shortened in a good way. So I would previously require nine to 10 hours to sleep. And then even when I would wake up, I'd still be sleepy to feel rejuvenated. I was excited for this podcast this morning, and I woke up at 3:30 and I already had a download that I want to also uh, share this interview. I get these ideas from somewhere, God, the universe, and, and then I spin them around, but they usually seem to be pretty innovative concepts. But so as the microglial cells are finding the unhealthy mitochondria removing them and, and stuffing them off into the waste and recycling, I'm imagining they must have to go into the lymphatic system, or the brain lymphatic system, and as we increase the circulation, that should help the turnover, so that we move the old guys out and bring the new guys in, because uh, one of the basic concepts of Chinese medicine is stagnation is the foundation for all disease, so that's their concept is to find a stagnation and keep things moving, so can you expand upon the um, brain lymphatic system?
0: Yeah, there's no question that they found dysfunctional mitochondria in the bloodstream and in the lymphatic system as a result of microglia cleaning out the bad mitochondria so you do find that the lymphatic system is involved as well as the bloodstream in transport i find it really interesting just i rise slightly off your question but it comes up as a result of what you just said about the fact that after the adjustments that helped you sort of restore your health you found that you slept better but not necessarily longer, in fact, shorter. And so it was more effective sleep, but so much more effective that you didn't need as much. And that is something that from the very foundations of, or the first uses of vagus nerve stimulators with the implantable devices that were originally approved for the treatment of epilepsy, and now also have approval for the treatment of depression, what they found was that individuals, even though it was not what they were treating, that their sleep was becoming much more robust. And so, on the subject of sleep, the idea of keeping you in deep sleep longer, allowing you to have more effective sleep is one of the, seemingly one of the benefits of vagus nerve stimulation. Now, you can ask why that is, I'm fairly certain that that's a function of the fact that it's an anti-inflammatory process. but or it's anti-inflammatory in its effects. But inflammation is part of sleep. We actually spent some time talking about the cycles of sleep and the importance of the expression of inflammatory cytokines, not necessarily in a pro-inflammatory sense, but because the process of sleep is to consolidate memories and to clean out basically inefficient synapses, clear it out new cells that have been created, especially in the hippocampus that are not positioned properly, or alternatively to long-term potentiate synapses that are being used and are efficient and are useful. So the idea of expressing what are typically referred to as pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1 isn't necessarily expansively systemically pro-inflammatory thing. It's done more efficiently for the purposes of doing their microglial cell clearing out of debris, if you will. So the idea that vagus nerve stimulation by modulating the inflammasome and modulating the timing and the amount of pro-inflammatory signaling is an explanation or a partial explanation as to why it enhances sleep. So at the end of the day, I think what we're saying is that vagus nerve stimulation has the ability to be both anti-inflammatory from cytokine level from a gene expression level, but also from an energy and immunometabolism standpoint. So they all work together. I like to say that the body is not a series of independent organs, each one of which could become dysfunctional while leaving the others in proper homeostatic states. It's a symphony. If the trumpet section is not playing in tune with the violin section, well, you can't expect the woodwinds to be functioning right or the percussions to be functioning right. And I'm quite certain that the conductor will be tearing his hair out at that point. So you have to have everything in balance. You have to have everything functioning right. And that's where the immune system, I believe, the immune system and the autonomic nervous system function together to maintain not just homeostasis in a single cell, not just housekeeping tasks being done regionally correctly, but across the system. And you can't do that without the metabolism at the cellular level and at the systemic level functioning properly.
1: I love this because it's also uh, a potential mechanism for understanding why cognition is improved with vagus nerve stimulation as well. Increasing efficiency of the glymphatic system, increasing efficiency of mitochondrial function by clearing out debris and allowing for mitochondria to get the access to the nutrients that they require, lowering the inflammatory cytokine activity, increasing mitochondrial function and oxidative phosphorylation over glycolysis. So it's like this combination of this is why we have a positive cognitive effect because we're able to think more clearly because there's efficiencies that are created in the microglial system in that immunometabolism kind of side of things, as well as the glymphatic and the clearing of negative debris and, and inflammatory cytokine and challenges that could affect the body in a negative way. So it's really allowing for the most optimal flow, allowing for the efficiencies to come back in your sleep and for the efficiencies to come back in mitochondrial function, allowing us to think more clearly when
0: we're awake as well. Yeah. you know, One of the things that we've spent a lot of time on this podcast through all the episodes talking about, whether it be when we're talking about psychiatric conditions or we're talking about um, metabolic conditions or we're talking about the digestive system, one of the consequences that we've seen throughout all of these different conditions is a cognitive dysfunction that comes along with it. It's now being recognized as a primary comorbidity of a lot of conditions ranging from diabetes to depression to you name it. There's a host of different conditions that we now recognize to be at least in part inflammatory. And of course, how could any medical condition not to some extent include inflammation? But as a consequence of that systemic inflammation, cognitive impairment, we think of the classic symptoms of disease being things like flu-like symptoms that include sleep disruption, that include headache, that include achiness, that include stomach upset, things like that. All of those things really are just signs of inflammation. They're just beyond the four cardinal signs or five cardinal signs of inflammation. You really have to throw these other symptoms in because I don't think you'd be systemically inflamed without having a really strong predisposition to having a headache or really strong predisposition to having sleep disruption or really strong disposition towards having some sort of gastric upset. But one of the things that they're finding is that it also disrupts your cognitive function. And as a result, one of the things that they're now recognizing is that treatments that are focused on the inflammation. So things like TNF-alpha, anti-TNF-alpha drugs for autoimmune diseases, they're finding that these people have, after getting an infusion, they have a period of time afterwards where they're in a better mood. They call it sort of this glow that they're experiencing, that they also have an improvement in their cognitive function. And they're seeing the same thing with drugs for treating diabetes that go after the inflammatory piece, they're seeing that some of that cognitive dysfunction goes away. And so, at the end of the day, I think that all of these systems, are, going back to what we just said, all these systems are linked together. And now we're recognizing that inflammation isn't just redness, heat, pain. I mean, it's not just those cardinal signs. It's all of the rest of these symptoms that we're experiencing. And I hope that as we get this message out and as other people start to to hear it from other sources, that we'll start to recognize that at the root of all symptoms and at the root of all disease ultimately is inflammation and a dysregulation of the innate immune cells that are meant to keep us in balance and, and maintain us.
1: Dr. Yoder, I'd love to hear about some of the experiences you've had in your practice that relate to this, where you're seeing inflammatory levels generally higher when a patient comes in? Are there certain conditions that seem to kind of link together? Are there certain conditions or challenges that you've noticed in your clinical care, initially on history taking or in the initial steps of your care? And then what are the practices or the tools that
2: you utilize to help over overcome these challenges? Yep, so that kind of circles back to the download I got this morning. And the download I got this morning was that maybe we've been looking at the stress response as the wrong angle of the context of how to address it and what's right or wrong, so to say, that we think, you know, there's stress and stress is bad. Well, then some people have learned that there's this good stress, like you stress, like if you go out for a long run there, you're the one in control. You want to run for exercise benefits. You're in control of that stress, but you know that the benefits of increased oxygen, the endorphins release, the increased cardiovascular, the overall rudder's high benefit more than the consequence. So you create stress upon yourself. But what came to me this morning was that instead of looking at stress as a promoter of disease and inflammation, that really stress is a sign of your capacity of how much energy you have and how much energy you can utilize to then deal with the upcoming challenges. Meaning that if I've got a big messy yard or big messy house, I'm going to need a lot of energy to clean that up, to organize it. Okay, If I have a big research project or a big paper to write, I need lots of energy to think about how to stay focused on hand, to have a working memory synapse and fire, to just be coherent and make sense out of that. If I'm sick and... I don't have enough energy, I'm going to feel probably more stress because I just know subconsciously like outcome is it going to be so well because I just don't have the energy to deal with this. If you want a relationship, you want to have energy because if you don't have energy, you, you like retreat to your room and go underneath the covers, I don't want to talk to anybody. So it was inspiring to me that, you know, the famous Einstein equation, E equals MC squared, maybe is a lot more than we realized, really is all about energy and the mitochondria. And from that, how we can then address stress or inflammation and healing. So, coming back to your specific question about my patients, the common denominator is I take a very good biopsychological, biochemical, physical history evaluation. It is probably the biggest chunk of the first visit is just listening to their story. And all across the board, there's stress from the past, physical, mental, emotional, biochemical, but then by giving up and loss of hope of how to deal with that. And so how the heck are you going to resolve something? You can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel or a strategy or step A to step B, how to get there and you don't even know where you're going to get the energy from. That's the biggest aha moment where they they tell me that, they delineate that, and then I offer them some hope, some energy steps. And then the light bulbs turn on and, and they're like, okay, I'm all ears. I'm here. I want to get better. And after that, it's it's pretty much just follow the plan there. So I get them on an anti-inflammatory diet. I, I use designs for health. I do put them on a 21-day liver cleanse, which forces them to clean up their diet. And they're eating less. So their blood flow through the liver is enhanced, which is I call the liver of the great firefighter. So the firefighter now is on, machine to douse out the fires that are all over the place and then they learn about their bad habits you know reducing gluten and carbs and alcohol sugars and coffee they don't know that coffee is very moldy for the brain and it's very acidic so it's very dehydrating for the tissues and the brain does not like to be dehydrated we got to keep that brain hydrated so they do that they get their adjustments and so where i'm at with the adjustments is that are getting electrical, cervical, vagus nerve stimulation. When they're doing that as well too, they're not just holding it at the spot. I actually have them massage it up and down. So we're getting the electrical activation of the upper cervical brainstem, the vagus nerve stimulation. We're getting lymphatic circulation as well too. So I have them massage it back and forth for that duration, the two minutes on the right and the left. Then I'm telling them to practice better sleep habits. So reduce that screen time an hour before bed getting them to journal about gratitude being a place of thankfulness for what they do have what is going right because you know when the glass is half empty it's hard to be positive so they have to really muster up more positive thinking and their mindset i tell them to be accountable so to write it down and to tell one or two other people because when you hold your plan accountable to more than yourself then you don't want to let your team down so there's indications that when you do teamwork with a goal whether it be weight loss or fitness challenge or whatever that you tell a couple of people you're more likely to succeed than if you just do it alone because you're more likely to let yourself down than let your other people down. After they do the 21 day liver detox program I put in the most powerful probiotics in the world into their system and that's for the fact that the vagus nerve as you know travels mostly from the gut to the brain if we were breastfed, we got wonderful breast milk from our mothers. And I'd actually heard from a medical doctor that we are kind of born with a leaky gut and what closes and seals that gut to prepare for food digestion through the mouth because we've been kind of tube fed from our mouths, from the placenta cord, is colostrum and breast milk. If we have a leaky gut in the future or chronic issues, re-inoculating and sealing that gut with colostrum and powerful probiotics could reverse that very quickly there. so. I found a company that sells the only human probiotics in the world. All the other probiotics are plant or animal derived. We can eat plants and animals, but this company actually derives human breastbone powder and has a patent on it. So they reseal the gut. They continue with their vagus nerve stimulation. They try to stay an anti-inflammatory diet lifestyle. And see the labs normalize. I hear the testimonies come back again from better sleep to better cognition to dropping in weight to blood pressure, inflammation, and pain. So the healing is, it's in all of us, but it's waiting to be activated with enough energy and some good anti-inflammatory protocols. But the mindset of how to deal with stress, I feel is very, very important in the healing healing field.
1: I absolutely love it. You've hit a lot of nails on the head there for me. Uh, There's a lot of parallels between how you work with patients and how I do. I completely concur, especially with regards to liver function, the detoxification process being incredibly important that we're able to filter out a lot of the toxins that are building up in the body. The liver has hundreds of functions. We want to make sure that that system is working really well. I actually call it, JP, you would mention the conductor of the orchestra. For me, that's what the liver is. It's conducting the hormone orchestra within the body. It's maintaining that elimination and detoxification of the body. There's so many different important functions that it has. And then obviously with regards to vagus nerve function being heavily linked to the gut, the microbiome, the leakiness that does occur. I have seen a lot of research that we are born with that leaky gut and it is the colostrum and mother's milk that helps to allow for the tightening of those tight junctions to occur. Once we get to that 6, 8, 12 months, where we can start adding food to our diet as we continue to grow. And so there's a lot of parallels drawn between your practice
2: and my practice, a hundred percent. it's really wonderful to hear. The last little piece I want to show you guys here, and I'm going to walk for a second. I'll show it to you guys here is this diagram that is a collection of Eastern and Western concepts, but I'm going to show it to you right here. And can you guys see that? It looks like a clock. Yes. And it's actually an Oregon meridian clock with different time periods. And if you zoom in to the top green area that says gallbladder liver, what time does the liver meridian say? 1 to 3. Yep. And 3 what's, happen- what's happening at 1 to 3 a.m.? Sleeping. Ideally, we should be sleeping. But the quality of how deep we sleep does depend on how efficient that liver is working. So the liver is behind schedule and full of inflammation and debris and garbage and filth it's going to be so busy, it's going to rob from Paul to give to Peter, so to say, or whatever how that phrase goes. And it's going to say, yeah, you know what? I need to do more cleaning than you, I'm going to allow you to have sleep there so you don't get sleep or my patient will tell me, yeah, I wake up at 2 a.m. for some reason. I wake up at 3 a.m. I don't know why. Uh, the liver is disrupting the sleep pattern.
0: So, let me ask a question about some of the patients specifically. I know you can't give names or anything like that, but you and I have spoken about a number of patients that you've had in the past. I remember one individual who had been to many different clinicians based on some very painful rash and sores and almost like bug bites that he had on his legs for years that had been disabling. And you talked about how you elicited from him on the very first day the fact, very stressful and emotionally damaging event that had occurred that he had never really processed. And that once he processed that, then the symptoms just simply went away on their own after having been there for years. He just needed to re- resolve that horrible event that happened in his past. But now, with the advent of and your use of vagus nerve stimulation, have there been patients? You talk about blood pressure, you've talked about sleep, you've talked about maintaining the adjustments. Are there any patients that come to mind who had very interesting or noteworthy responses? as a result of the integration or you start beginning to use vagus nerve stimulation in your practice?
2: Yeah. So there's a young girl who had um, a very high ACE score, adverse childhood events, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and so bad that she basically was agoraphobic. She'd just stay in her room and everything was through the room there. So everything was online and she just wanted to be a normal human being and go to school, have a Boyfriend, have a job, go to college, and so I knew that with the current model supporting her with talk therapy, medications, it wasn't enough to move the needle. So I put her on um, an anti-inflammatory diet, lifestyle program, and um, I gave her a vagus nerve stimulator. She now has the capacity. She had a boyfriend. She's uh, working two jobs and back to school and out about so much that people don't know where she's at because she's doing so much with the life. So that was (laughs) a huge 180.
0: That's a tremendous story. I'm really heartened to hear that. Anything outside of the psychiatric realm in the metabolic space? Did you have somebody who had a change in either body weight or in hypertension side of things? Anything where you've seen some real almost digital change in the person's response to therapy as a result of the use of vagus nerve stimulation.
2: Yes. It was in uh, the article that's going to be released in American Chiropractor in January, hopefully. Um, A dentist who, during the pandemic, dentists had some extra stress scenarios because uh, the dental assistants weren't showing up to work. They didn't want to be up close to somebody's mouth during the pandemic, because at that time, we were we even thought the virus you know, could be contaminated upon uh, the UPS packages. <laughs> we just didn't know how bad the virus was. So uh, definitely being up close in somebody's mouth for a long period of time during a dental cleaning was something that people didn't want to do. So the dentists were dropping like flies. There. Nobody was coming to the practice. The dental hygienists were just disappearing. And so, he was under a lot of stress, and this is his main bread and butter to support his family. And he'd already been on Prilosec for about 10 years, but it just got really, really bad. So, his heartburn was just getting really horrific. He may have even had a bleeding inside and some observational bleeding in the stool there. So that's obviously a major tissue damage and unresolved healing, because I believe the stomach lining heals itself. It's healthy every five days. So he was way behind schedule. I put him on the same program, the 21-day detox, the probiotics and the vagus nerve stimulator. And uh, within six weeks, he reported that all the symptoms were gone, he was off the sec and he could even have a cheat day and his stomach is fine and he's continuing to do the vagus nerve stimulation and enjoying life and going about and his stomach feels confidence. That definitely isn't just a gastrointestinal resolution, but chronic ulcers bleeding inside the stomach there, that's massive tissue damage. That was a pretty significant case. Excellent.
1: Yeah, this is always wonderful to hear about the different cases and the different challenges that can be overcome when we are looking at cases very holistically and addressing all of the different challenges that lead to these problems. And so it's really wonderful to hear different cases and, and resolutions that are occurring with your patients. So thank you for sharing those with us. I do want to say that this has been a wonderful conversation we're kind of getting to the end of our time and we want to obviously make sure that you're okay with your schedule we're gonna call it really soon but we want to give you the opportunity to kind of give any last words any recommendations or anything you want to
2: mention at the end of our episode today yeah so if you're a practitioner or a patient listening to this podcast feeling despair, loss of hope, loss of guidance, lack of faith and the body's healing capacity. re listen to this podcast a couple of times because there's a couple of gemstones that we each have shared. And I think we've discovered some powerful tools that can really, really reverse disease and uh, focus on basic fundamentals at the cellular level between vagus nerve stimulation, anti-inflammation, better sleep, liver support, cleaner diet that are pretty darn significant. And uh, I really think the doctor is truly within, Mm -hmm. and it just needs a couple of biohacks and aids to help awaken that uh, and to shift the needle to a place where you're having energy, so much energy, you can overcome stress and get back to doing what you want to do with your life and your health there. So there's support out there. So you do have to be proactive, uh, but definitely have patience and give yourself some grace that healing does take time, but if you find the right doctor to work with and the right tools, you can have what I call speed healing. So, thank uh, you.
0: JP, any final words on your side? You know, I'll, I'll just add on to what Dr. Yoder just said. You know, my wife and I have been married now for coming up on two decades. Uh, early on in the in the marriage, there was a bit of tension associated with uh, dirty dishes. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife used to say, and she couldn't possibly imagine how it is that I survived prior to her being there, given how reticent I was to clean up dishes in the sink. My retort was that I had survived for close to 35 years prior to her being in my life. Obviously, I'm much better for having, but I say the same thing in the context of our health. Today, I think most people in our society, especially Western societies, look to the medical community and to the health providers that are in our, as if the only way we survived is because they're there. And I think that that's not giving due to what our bodies are capable of doing. And I think the more we get away from relying on ourselves and giving ourselves the tools to heal and to recover and to live a healthier lifestyle so we're more resilient and more flexible, the more we become, we lose our strength, we lose our our independence. And so I would just say to all the people out there that are listening, have faith that your body is capable of healing. Have faith that your body is capable of dealing with challenges. Have faith that your body is capable and your mind are capable of dealing with all the the bad things that happen because inside us, we have the capacity to regenerate and to come back to that healthy state that we all want and, and strive for but to do it, we have to give ourselves the best chance of success. Sure, antibiotics and surgery and you know stent procedures and things like that are wonderful advances that have made us live longer, but they haven't necessarily made us live better. And so what I would say to everybody is, if you know, not only want to heal and survive, but you want to actually live your best life then look to some of the teachings and things that Dr. Yoder's been talking about and we've been talking about on this podcast to give yourself the best chance to not only survive, but to thrive. And we can do that through diet, exercise, sleep. Vagus nerve stimulation is a wonderful way, whether you do it through the more traditional ways of yoga breathing techniques and some of the other things we've talked about, or you use modern technology like vagus nerve stimulation to enhance it Either way, give yourself that best chance to thrive. I love it. I don't think I
1: could have said it better myself, and I think it's a perfect point for us to end on. So thank you both for joining today, Dr. Yoder. It's an absolute pleasure to share your information with the world. And if anybody wants to get in touch, the best way to find you is at davidyoderwellness.com. Yes, davidyoderwellness.com. Yeah, Wonderful. We will share that with everybody, but thank you so much for joining again today, and For those who are listening and got to this point in the podcast, thank you so much for joining, for listening, and please share this with anyone that you think could use this information to help upgrade their health. Have a wonderful day, and we'll catch you all in the next one.